0: Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started this evening, and we're in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, and we'll read the whole chapter, and I prepared to do the whole chapter, but we'll see. We'll just play it by ear. Matthew chapter 20. There it says in verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. And again he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden in the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. And Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way He said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and will hand Him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify Him, and on the third day He will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of Him. He said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed Him, and two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to Him, Lord, we want our eyes to be open. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for our time to be together tonight. And Lord, we do pray that You would teach us from Your Word. Lord, that you might open our eyes, just as you did these two blind men. Lord, that they were able to see. Lord, so we know that uh, you have come to give sight to those who are blind. And Lord, in our natural state, we are blind. and We are unable to see and to understand uh, spiritual truths that must be uh, discerned with spiritual eyes. And so we pray, Father, that tonight you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that we might understand uh, your kindness and your... Uh, generosity, Lord, that you have given, Lord, to those who belong to you, Uh, Lord, that we might see that you are uh, this good landowner who gives so generously, Lord, to those who are working in his field, Lord, that we might uh, see and understand how good and kind you have been to each and every one of us, Lord, by making us uh, laborers in your vineyard, and Lord, by calling us to go and to uh, take your burden upon ourselves, which is no burden at all, but, Lord, is rather light and easy to bear because You give us Your Spirit, Lord, who teaches us and who causes us to walk in Your ways. So, Father, we pray for Your blessing to be upon us tonight. Lord, help us to see and understand these things. Lord, as well to see and understand the necessity of suffering for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. Lord, that we would not be envious of one another, that we would not be ambitious and seek to exalt ourselves over and against our brother but rather that we might with humility love and serve one another as is proper for those in the kingdom of God. So, Lord, help us tonight, and we pray for your blessing to be upon us. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so here in chapter 20, uh, really this is a continuation of what Jesus uh, had begun last week that we read in chapter 19 in verse 30. Chapter 19, verse 30 says, "...many who are first will be last, and the last first." And then chapter 20, verse 16 says, So the last shall be first, and the first last. So you have these two statements, and then in between those, this parable of the laborers in the vineyard, which is given to explain this statement. Right? What he means by this statement, the first will be last, and the last will be first. So this parable is given to teach this truth, or to exemplify it, to portray it in such a way that it is easy for us to understand and to grass. And the p- comparison that he's making here is to point out and to highlight the graciousness of God, how gracious God is in the way that He treats those who are laboring in His vineyard. Now in these parables, you cannot press every single point and try to get something out of it. Because there are things here that we'll see, that will not be true on the Day of Judgment when God is dispensing His rewards. Namely, that those who have worked long and hard for the Kingdom of Christ will not grumble and complain about those who are late comers into the Kingdom of God. Everyone will be happy and everyone will be rejoicing in the grace of God. But here it's stated in this way in order to make a point, right? In order to make a point. So we have to understand those things. When we're dealing with these parables, they're teaching general truths and general principles and every single point uh, cannot be pressed into uh, some spiritual truth or into something, or we'll overinterpret them and, and our brains will become a fog. Okay? So we have to remember that when we're dealing with parables like this. They, they are intended to teach something, and here it is the graciousness of God and how the first will be last and the last will be first. There is this equaling out in the kingdom uh, in terms of the way that God deals with His servants, and we should not begrudge the kindness and the graciousness of God. Why should we envy His graciousness? Why should we be ambitious over and against our brother when God chooses to give him more gifts or more abilities than He chooses to give me, right? Whatever God does and however He dispenses His grace and mercy, what is that to us, right? All we should do is be grateful for what He's done for us that He's made us a part of His kingdom, and that He's given us any measure of grace is more than any of us deserve. So why should we be jealous of another servant of Christ, right? We shouldn't be like that, but rather we should see and understand, what do you have that you have not received? If then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it, right? We should not uh, uh, be envious of others, but rather we should realize that whatever we have in terms of spiritual truth in terms of spiritual graces, goodness, all of it is a gracious gift that comes to us from above and we should rejoice in the very work of God. So this first parable here then is teaching this truth. So let's start with it and uh, we'll take it verse by verse here. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Here he's making, again, by way of comparison... He's using this parable to teach something that is true about the kingdom of heaven, right? The kingdom of heaven being the kingdom of Christ or the eternal kingdom, the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. So he's talking about this kingdom of Christ and what it is like, the nature of this kingdom. And many of the parables of Christ are intended to teach that truth. Right, the nature of the kingdom of heaven or of the kingdom of God. And he compares it to a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now here, the vineyard is a common metaphor used in the Bible to describe the people of God. The people of God, the church, the Israel of God. Sometimes it is used to refer to the outward manifestation of that Sometimes it's used to refer to the true spiritual reality, and the context determines how we are to take it. So let's see this in a couple of examples. First, Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5, the nation Israel is compared to a vineyard, in that they were set apart from the rest of the nations, given certain spiritual benefits uh, that were not true of the other nations, Namely, the oracles of God, the covenants, the adoption, uh, the worship of God. These things were given to them. They had the patriarchs. And yet, even though this was true of them, in terms of access, in terms of outward access to the things of God, they did not make good use of it, and they are a vineyard that's going to be destroyed. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 says, Let me sing now for my beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste, I will not it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. distress. So there, Israel and Judah are like a vineyard of the Lord. He gave them many spiritual advantages, many spiritual benefits that He did not give to other nations that should have produced in them good fruit, faith, repentance, obedience to God, right? Justice, righteousness. But instead of it producing those things, there was bloodshed and a cry of distress. And so because of this, God was going to curse them, curse them because of that. But there again, the vineyard is used as a illustration for the people of God. For the people of God, not that they were the true people of God, right. but they were the outward people of God. They had the name people of God, the name Israel, but they did not bear it in truth and in right. Then Jeremiah chapter 12 verse 10. Here he combines two metaphors that are used to describe the people of God. Jeremiah 12.10, that being both the flock, the imagery of a flock, and also the vineyard. Jeremiah 12.10, Many shepherds have ruined my vineyard. They have trampled down my field. They have made my pleasant field a desolate wilderness. So there the shepherds, which are the pastors, the priests, those who are sent to teach the Word of God to the people... Instead of teaching it, they're ruining them because they're not preaching the Word of God correctly. They're not rightly dividing the Word of Truth. And as a result, they're trampling down the field of the Lord. That area, those people, where there should be found good fruit. But there's not found good fruit. Here, he's charging the pastors, those that are to be teaching the Word of God, with this great sacrilege. And then also, John chapter 15 John 15 verses 1 and 2, John 15, to 2, here it's used in the positive sense of a true believer or the true vineyard of God. John 15, 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So there, the vine, the vine in the vineyard is Christ. The vine dresser is His Father. And then the church, the people, are the branches. The dead branches are those who profess to be believers, but are not true, and they are rejected. And then the true believers are those that bear fruit, and they are pruned so that they bear more fruit. So here we have then the vineyard is the church or the Uh, the people in which the work of God is happening. This is the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a vineyard. And here He hires laborers for His vineyard. For His vineyard, this would be the people, right? The people that make up the people of God. John chapter 4, this is true of all believers. Everyone who professes to be uh, in Christ is a laborer in the field, laborer in the vineyard. John chapter 4, verses 35 and 38 says, Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages, and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together." For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So they're laborers, laborers in the field, the field of the Lord. In the field are the people, the people that are coming out to hear the gospel, to hear the gospel and to see the Christ according to the testimony of the Samaritan woman. So this is what is being described here. The kingdom of heaven is like this vineyard, and God is bringing laborers into that vineyard, right? That is what they are doing, and they're being brought there to work, to work for the kingdom of Christ, which is what our calling is as believers in Christ. We are to work for our king. We are to work for our Lord, for our master, and we are supposed to do His will, verse two, says, "When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard." Here, this master agrees with these laborers that he's going to give them a payment, a reward for their work, for their work. And here, it's a denarius for the day. So he's hiring them in the morning, sending them into the vineyard to work for the day, and then he's going to pay them for their labor. And here again, we also see and know. That there are rewards for those who labor in the field of the Lord, who work in His vineyard. First Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians 9 verses 24 to 27. 1 Corinthians 9.24 says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Here, the Christian life is likened unto a race that he is running. And he's running it the right way. He's competing so that he can get the prize, right? That's what he wants is this imperishable wreath, this imperishable crown, which will be given to those who compete according to the rules, according to the rules. Also, 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4 verses 6 to 8. Second Timothy 4, 6 says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing so there his ministry or his christian life is described as a fight that he has fought a course that he has finished that he has kept the faith and there is now waiting for him a crown of righteousness that will be awarded to him on the day of christ that this is the reward that god will give to him now it's very important that we understand of course jesus is not teaching workspace salvation we know that that is not the case right being called by the master to go into the field and to work is a gracious act of God no one can go into the field no one can go into the vineyard and work for the Lord without being called by God otherwise they just lay around in their dead bin right this is something that only the living can do so it is a gracious act of God for someone to go into the field and to be called and brought there in that way all of it is based upon the grace of God. But Christ, being such a kind, being such a gracious and generous Master, He rewards us for our labor in His kingdom. Right? He gives to us rewards and He gives to us this crown of life for our faithfulness to Him. Even though our faithfulness to Him all comes from His grace and from His strength. Right. This is the way it is. But we are called to be faithful to the Lord. And those who are faithful, he will receive they will receive the reward. Right? In contrast to those who presume upon the grace of God, who say, "Oh yeah, I'll go to the vineyard," but then they're lazy and they don't do anything. And they think that they're going to get their reward, but we shouldn't think in that way. We should be diligent and we should be striving to please our master, to do his will and to be faithful workers of Christ Jesus. Okay, then verse 3. 3 and 4 says, And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give to you. So they went. Here, the first group, this is all following the work day. The work day, which are 12 hours in a day. 12 hours in a work day is what, uh, they work harder than we do today. They didn't have an 8 hour work day, they had a 12 hour work day, okay? That began at 6 o'clock in the morning. So 6 o'clock in the morning, is when the first men were hired to go out into the vineyard. Then the master comes back, and there are others who are there at the third hour, and they're standing idle in the marketplace. This would be at 9 o'clock in the morning. So he tells them, You go to the vineyard, and I'll pay you as well. And so they also go to the vineyard. Then verse 5, Again, he went the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. The sixth hour would be 12 o'clock or noon, And then the ninth hour would be three o'clock in the afternoon. He goes back at these different times of the day. He finds their men who are standing idle, and He calls them to go into His vineyard and to go and work, and He will pay them according to what they have done. Then verse 6, About the eleventh hour He went and found others standing around and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to Him, because no one hired us. And He said to them, You go to the vineyard also. The eleventh hour would be five o'clock. Five o'clock in the evening, with only one hour to go. And He finds them there at five o'clock and tells them, You go out and work as well, and I'll pay you your wages for your work. Now if we go over to John chapter 11, John chapter 11, and verse 9. This is the distinct, this is the uh, categorization of the days or the hours that is being made here. John eleven nine. 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. 12 hours in the day, meaning typically speaking, right, there's 12 hours of daylight in the day, 12 hours of day and 12 hours of darkness. Now, of course, Jesus knows that some days are shorter than others in terms of light and darkness. In some days, there's more light and less darkness, according to the times and seasons of the year. But generally speaking, typically, there's 12 hours of day and there's 12 hours of night. And the 12 hours of day is when men are working. That's when we're to work. And then at night is when we rest. And it's based upon this 12-hour workday that is then divided into these increments of quarters, right? A three-hour quarter. The, uh, and this is the way that this is advancing in this uh, parable. So the 12 hours is from 6 to 6. The first hour was 6 a.m., then the second group is at 9 a.m., the third group was at 12 p.m., the fourth group was at 3, and then the last group was at 5 p.m. Okay, this is the way the, the laborers are sent out into the vineyard to go and to work on behalf of the Master. Now the question here is, this variation of people, what does it refer to? Right? The variation of people in stages as they are going out into the vineyard. And there are different interpretations uh, in, in terms of what this refers to or what it means. I'll give you the different ones and then tell you which one I think is the best. There are some who say that these refer to different ages of the earth that there's the time before the law, there's the time during the law, there's the time during, uh, during Christ, and then there are the last days. And that there are people being called into the vineyard, into the church, or into the people of God during these different ages or different times throughout the history of the world. And they're all being brought into the kingdom. And certainly that is true, right? We understand that that is true, uh, a true statement, and so it's not contradictory any other part of Scripture, okay? So there are some who see it like that. Others who would see this as a reference between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews being those who were called first, and then the Gentiles are those who are called later. But both Jews and Gentiles all inherit the same kingdom of God, right? The Jews don't go to a better place, and the Gentiles to a lesser place because they were brought into the church later than the Jews, but rather all of them inherit the kingdom of God because they're all part of the household of faith. Then others think it's referring to stages of life, stages of life. In that, some people are called to faith and made workers in the vineyard when they're children, in their childhood. Then others are called when they are in their youth. Others are called when they are in young adulthood. Others when they are in an older adulthood of life. And then others in old age, right, in old age. So people are called in different Stages of life. And I think that's the best way to look at it. That's the way I'm taking it here, okay? But the other two would be fine, and both of them are true as well. And this is certainly something we see in the Bible that there are some people who were called at a very, very young age and who spend their entire lives serving and working for the Lord, who work for the Lord. An example of this, 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. Verse 1, Samuel, the boy, was called by the Lord, converted at a very, very young age. And then he lived to be a very old man, and he served the Lord all of his life and was faithful to the Lord. He was working from 6 a.m. in the morning until 6 p.m. at night, right? In terms of his life, from the early part of his life all the way to the late part of his life, he served the Lord faithfully and worked diligently for the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter three, verse one. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, visions were infrequent. It happened at that time, as Eli was lying down in his place, now his eyesight had begun to grow dim, and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, that the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. So there he's called the boy Samuel that he was still a lad or a boy. It doesn't say how old, but he was young. He was very young when this is happening and he's ministering to the Lord. And he's already being called by God as a prophet and for this very unique ministry that will be true of him. So he was a very young man whenever he was called in that way. Also, Psalm 71, Psalm 71 Verse 5, 71.5 says, For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from my youth. And then also 71.17. O God, you have, taught me from your, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. Here, this is a psalm written in old age. right? It even calls it a prayer of an old man for deliverance. And he's referring back to the fact that even from my youth, I knew you. Even from my youth, you have been my hope. You have been my confidence. You have taught me your ways from my youthfulness. So when I was a young man until even now in my old age. So these are examples of someone being called in the very early or the dawn of life, right? When they are first when they are young and they are brought into the kingdom of God, And then they will serve the Lord all their days. And that is the blessed state. This is what we should desire and pray for all of our children. That God would call them in their youthfulness, in their childhood, and that they would serve the Lord all their days and that they would never live a life of wanton sin and pleasure. That they wouldn't live in that way, but that they would serve God all of their life. That's the best life to live, right? The more miserable life is to live in sin for many, many, many years. Now, it's good to be called out of that, and to be converted, even if it's later in life. But there still would be the regret of squandering 30, 40, 50, 60 years of life, living in sin, not serving the Lord. Right? It would be better to serve the Lord all of your life. An example of someone who was called by God late in life, very, very late in life, would be Luke 23. Luke 23. Now, it doesn't tell us how old he is, So we don't know if he is an old man, but at least in terms of his life, this is the end of his life, the very, very end. This is the day of his death. And yet on the day of his death, this man is called into the vineyard to go and work. And he only works for a very, very short amount of time, only a few hours maybe, but he still will receive a reward. 23 verse 39 one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me, in paradise. So there, this thief on the cross was converted on the day that he died. This is the day of his salvation. So he would be like one who went out at 5 o'clock, at the, very, at the 11th hour, the very end of the day, he went out and worked. But he is told that he will be with Christ in paradise that day, that he will go and enter into eternal life. Verse 8. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received denarius. Uh, when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received denarius. Uh, when they received it, they uh, grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day." But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Now, again, as I said earlier, on the day of judgment, people aren't going to be doing this. They're not going to be griping and complaining about the way that God is dispensing his rewards and his justice. He's doing this to make a point, right? To make a point and to show the graciousness of God. He can do whatever He wants. And if He wants to give His grace to a thief on the cross on the very last day of His life, having lived a life of sin, of such wanton sin that He's being justly executed, right? Think about how many people, well, no one hardly today, but in the history of the world, how many people suffered execution, public execution because they were criminals and justly so. It's very rare for someone to be such a a, a gross sinner that it would rise to that level of public execution. And that is what is happening to him. Having lived a life of sin, he's being put to death on his last day and he is converted. He receives the grace of God. And that thief on the cross entered into the same kingdom of God as the boy Samuel, who served the Lord all of his life. And he'll sit at table with Samuel in the kingdom of God. And with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets because it's all based on the grace of God. And that's why God does it this way. He does not save in a uniform way. He doesn't save everyone when they're 12 years old. But rather, He does it in different ways in order to highlight and to show that it's all based on His grace and His mercy so that God gets the glory and not man. That's the, the point that he's making here. Those first in point of time have no right to boast or insult others. Right? If we're saved in our childhood we can't say well it's because I'm smarter than everyone else. I figured it out when I was a little child. Why did it take you thirty or forty years? Well why did you figure it out as a child? Is it because you're wiser than other people? Was it because you're smarter than others? Or is it because of the grace of God? It's all based on the grace of God. So we can't boast. No one can boast in anything. The Lord may do as He pleases. He can call a man whenever He wants and give them an equal footing in the kingdom of God or even give them a superior footing in the kingdom of God according to His pleasure. Didn't this happen with the Apostle Paul in terms of his apostleship? He was the Last of the apostles, the last born, and even one who was born out of season. Because his apostleship came after the resurrection of Christ, after the ascension of Christ. So all the other apostles were apostles before the apostle Paul. But who excelled all of them? He did. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 8 to 11. But then we have to ask, why did he excel the other ones? Well, He tells us why He excelled them. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Right, in terms of apostleship, the others were called at 6 o'clock in the morning. And the apostle Paul was called later in the day, maybe 9 or 12 o'clock. And yet, when he went to the field, he worked harder than the rest of them. He did much more in terms of his labor and his ministry. But is that because he's better than them? No, he says... It's not me, it's the grace of God within me. And it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. Whether it's me, whether it's them, all that matters is that the Word of God is being preached. All that matters is that people are working in the vineyard of the Lord. So, this is why He says to them, I'm not doing you any wrong. I agreed to give you a denarius for a day's work, and you got exactly what I told you you would get. And if I want to give the same to someone who worked less, then I have the right to do that, right? And you can't complain and grumble about those things. Verse 15, he says, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? God can be gracious however He pleases. And no one can gripe and complain about it. Because if it's God's, if it's a gift then can we not dispense of our gifts as we please? If I have a million dollars and I want to give it away, and I want to give it to one person and not to anyone else, I can do whatever I want with it. If I want to divide it equally among ten people, I can do that. Or if I want to give half of it to one, and then divide the rest of it amongst the other nine, I can do that. Right? It's my money, so I can do whatever I want with it and dispense of it as I please, and no one can gripe and complain if they don't get anything, or if they get less than someone else, And the one who gets more can't boast because it's a gift that was being given to him. He hasn't done anything to earn these things. This is the point that he's making here. Isn't it lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? It's God's grace, right? It's His kingdom, right? It's His mercy, it's His rewards, it's His crown of life. He can give it to whomever He wants in whatever way that He wants. And no one can gripe and complain and say, Oh, this isn't fair. This isn't right. We don't like the way that God dispenses His grace and mercy. We should just be happy that He gives it to anyone. And if we are a recipient of it, then what do we have to gripe about? We should be very happy that God has given us anything. And it is better to be a a servant in the house of the Lord, better to be a doorman in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Isn't it better to do that, to be a janitor for the Lord? Than to be a king out in the world, and to die in your sin and go to hell. So the way that God dispenses His grace and favor, no man can gripe and complain, he can be gracious, however he pleases. This is Romans chapter nine, Romans 9:14 to18. Romans 9:14 to 18. Romans 9, 14 to 18. He says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? May it never be. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raise you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He has mercy and compassion on whomever He wills. And it does not depend on any man. It only depends on God. So if He wants to be gracious to one and He wants to harden another, then He can do whatever He wants. Can He do what He wants with what is His own? And who is His own? All of us. All of us. He is the potter and we are the clay. Doesn't the potter have rights over the clay? To make from one a vessel for wrath and the other a vessel for mercy and then even in the vessels of mercy he has the right to give more grace to one to give greater faith to one to give greater knowledge to one greater wisdom to one he can give greater abilities to one man versus another and we see that even in the world at large that there are some men who have greater skills greater capacity they have a better mind than others Other men are stronger. They have a stronger body than others, right? God does whatever He wants and no one can complain with how God does these things. And we can't be envious of God or others when we see the grace of God manifested in their lives. But rather we should rejoice, especially in the church. So if God gives someone a greater measure of faith, then we should rejoice in that because that's going to benefit me and it's going to benefit my family, And it's going to benefit the other people in the church. And it's going to bring glory to God. So we should rejoice at those things. Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 teaches this. Verses 3 to 8. And if we have received a greater measure of faith and grace, then we can't boast and be conceited toward others and think that we're better than them because... It's the grace of God. It didn't come from us. It came from God's grace. Romans 12 verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. "...since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his servants, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness." So there, he says, "...not to think more highly than he ought. We should have sober judgment." Right, God has allotted to each a measure of faith. According to whose will? will. According to God's. He gives some greater faith, a greater measure of faith than others. And they are set before us as examples that we should follow and say that we should strive to be like that. And then he says, We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. We have different gifts, and not all have the same function in the church. Right. And we can't be envious of one another. We can't grumble and complain, right? Some people in the body are feet; other people are hands; others are eyes, right? Others are uh, uh, nose, whatever, whatever it is in terms of the body, right? We have all these different members of the body, and each of them are essential for the building up of the whole unit. And this is how it is. God gives grace. He gives the faith. He gives grace. He gives gifts to each according to His will. And then we should rejoice in what God has done in our life and what God has done in another. And we should just be happy to be a part of the body of Christ. Right? To, to, To be afoot in the body of Christ is better than to be dead in our sins and going to hell. Right? And that's the way that we should look at it. Then verse 16. So the last shall be first, and the first last. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Right, again, according to the will of God. This is the way that God <laughs> will do His will. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. Matthew 8, verse 11. says I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there the gentiles will come from east and west and they're going to recline at table with who? Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Though these men are greater in terms of their position and standing as patriarchs and they were men of great faith and great righteousness yet they're sitting at the same table with these Gentiles that come in later right because the first are last and the last are first right it all is according to the will of God and there they are all together in the same kingdom of heaven okay verse 17 as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Here, this is leading up to the final uh, weeks final days of Christ. This is His final time to go to Jerusalem. And we know from earlier that He has been avoiding Jerusalem because the heat was turned up so much there and He was not going to die prematurely but was going to die according to the will of God. Well now He knows that the time has come for His departure and this is why He's going to Jerusalem because He's not going uh, foolishly or haphazardly. He's going intentionally and no one is taking His life away from Him but he's laying it down of his own accord. So whenever it is time for him to go and die, he willingly goes to Jerusalem, the place where he knows he's going to die. This is where he will meet his crucifixion. So he's going up that way. Now in Mark chapter 10 verse 32, it tells us there that the disciples and those who were following him that they were afraid. That they were afraid because of what they were doing. So there is fear in His followers and even fear in His disciples of what awaits them in Jerusalem because they're not dummies. They know what's going on. They know the hatred, the vitriol, the antagonism that has come from the scribes and Pharisees and that the seat of that animosity against Christ is in Jerusalem. Right? That's where the leaders are at And that if they go there, It's not going to end well for Jesus. That likely this is going to end in His death, maybe their death, imprisonment. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be suffering. So rightly, they are nervous, they're afraid, they're fearful, they're apprehensive about going there. Also in Luke chapter 18.31, He mentions there that everything must be fulfilled in the prophets concerning the Son of Man. Right, and then he tells them about his sufferings. Right. And we know from Luke twenty-four that it's necessary for the Christ to suffer and then enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all the things concerning himself. So this is being stated to them. He's taking them aside, he's telling them these things, not to trouble them, right? Not to scare them, but to comfort them. Right. This is for their comfort and for their benefit. First, because He's announcing it beforehand so that when it happens their faith is not going to be easily shaken. He's telling them this is what's going to happen and He's being very detailed about it. Right? That the uh, He's going to be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They're going to condemn Him to death. They're going to give Him to the Gentiles. They're going to mock Him, scourge Him, and crucify Him. So this is very detailed, very specific about exactly what is going to happen when they go to Jerusalem. So He's announcing it beforehand so that they're not easily shaken whenever these things happen. Though we know they are shaken and they do teeter and totter here and there, but what would it have been like if Jesus would have told them everything's going to be wonderful when we go to Jerusalem? Then they would have really been troubled in those things. So in that way it is for their comfort. Also that this is according to the prophets, He's telling them that in order to confirm to them the word of the Lord. They shouldn't be surprised that these things are going to happen. And if they know their prophets and are reading them carefully, then they will have known that the prophets predicted the sufferings of the Christ. So it shouldn't be shocking to them that the word of God must be fulfilled. But then also notice in verse 19, he tells them the third day he will be raised up. So He's not just talking about the sufferings, but He's also mentioning the glory that will come afterwards. And that is given to them for their joy and for their comfort. So He's telling them these things in order to help them and to sustain their faith. He says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. We are going there willingly, intentionally, purposefully. This is what we are doing because the very reason that Jesus came into the world the reason he took on human flesh is so that he could die on the cross for our sins. This is why he came into the world, is to die on the cross. So why would he shrink back from the very reason that he came into the world? No, he's not going to do that at all. John chapter 10, John chapter 10 verses 17 and 18. And this is necessary for our benefit, for our salvation. And we'll talk more about that on Sunday morning. Sunday morning uh, in Hebrews chapter 2. John 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So no one took His life from Him. He laid it down on His own initiative, on His own authority. He did these things. He laid it down and He took it up again because He received that from His Father. So this is not Jesus behaving recklessly, carelessly. You know, He's not doing that at all. He knows exactly what He is doing and He's going there for this purpose in order to die on the cross for our sins. Also, in verse 19, He very clearly predicts His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. So this is not something that was unknown before it happened, as some people say. Some people say that no one knew that the Christ was going to die on the cross until it happened. And then it happened and they said, oh, now it all makes sense. Well, clearly He's telling them beforehand that this is what's going to happen. And He's been teaching them for three years that this is what's going to happen. And He's been interpreting the Old Testament concerning these things to them for three years. So, this is not shocking or new, but this was all over the Old Testament that the way that the Christ would redeem His people is through the suffering of death. He had to die. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 and it is all over the Old Testament. This is the means by which He will save His people. He will suffer for their sins and He will be raised for their justification. This is the only way that salvation can happen. The only way that we can have our sins forgiven and that we can be delivered from the power of sin and death and Satan is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that people did not receive that is not because it's not in the Bible or not in the Old Testament. It's because people don't want it. Just same as it is today. right? We have the New Testament as well. And many people, they don't believe in the sufferings of Christ. They don't want a suffering Christ. They want a glorified Christ. They want a prosperity Christ, one who gives them health, wealth, and prosperity. But what is the proper order? Now, does Christ give prosperity eventually? Absolutely He does. But when? In the life to come. But now, we have our sufferings with Christ. We have our sufferings. We must suffer with Him, and then we will be glorified with Him, just as it was with Christ. Okay, then verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of Him. And He said to her, "'What do you wish?' She said to him, "'Command that in your kingdom these two sons of Mine may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left.' Jesus answered, "'You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink?' They said to Him, "'We are able.' He said to them, "'My cup you shall drink, but to sit on My right and on My left, this is not Mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by My Father." Here, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus, this being James and John, right? Peter, James, and John. And John and James were brothers and they were sons of Zebedee. And this is their mother who comes to Christ. Their mother was a follower as well. So she was a believer and was one of the women who went with them from place to place attending to his needs and doing those kinds of things. Also, she got to be with her sons, right? Doing those types of things. That way she could keep her eye on them, right? And they didn't get out, of, get out of hand. This is what my mom would She would do this as well, right? So uh, in Matthew chapter 27, Matthew 27 verse 56 Actually, we'll read verse 55 and 56. Matthew 27, 55 and 56 says, Many women were there looking on from a distance, whom had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to Him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So she's one of the women who ministered to Him, who followed Him from Galilee, along with These other two Mary, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, James also being one of the disciples, and then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, of James and John. And then if we go over to Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15, verse 40. It tells us there her name. There were also some women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less and Josephs and Salome. So the last one, Salome, that would be her, right? Because it's in the same uh, setting, in the same order uh, that was mentioned in Matthew chapter 27. So she is a follower of Christ and also um, some... Commentators say that she was the, she would have been a relative of Christ as well, one of his uh, relatives as well. Okay, so she's a follower of Christ and she's there with them and has been going with them. And so she comes up and is asking this question, bowing down and making a request of him. So she comes in a proper way, right, bowing down. That's a good thing. Humility, making a request of Him. That's a good thing. But then what she requests is not a good thing. So this would be an example of everything looking good on the appearance uh, outside, but then what's on the inside is not good. right? What's on the inside is, is actually evil. and its contrary, it's coming from the flesh. So in that way, she's taking the name of the Lord in vain because she's having the appearance of being very sincere, being very humble, Making a request of Christ, it's good for us to make request of Christ. It's good for us to bow down before Him. But then what she requests is not in and of itself a good thing, right? But rather, it's contrary to the will of God. And her question is, or he asked her, what do you wish? And she says, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. We remember in chapter 19, chapter 19, verse 28... To his disciples, Jesus said, "Truly, I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man, uh, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Here in the kingdom of Christ, when Christ is sitting on his glorious throne, he tells the disciples that you also will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel." Now obviously here, the the greater throne is the throne of Christ. And their thrones are uh, inferior to His. They are under His throne. So He has the seat of honor. He has the primary seat. But then they are sub-rulers in this kingdom with Him. Well, if Christ has a throne, and there's 12 of them, then there's only two spots, one on the right and one on the left. And those would be in terms of... The 12 thrones, those two thrones would be the thrones higher than the other ones, right? The closer you are to the man in the middle, right, to the one in the center is the better. And the highest honor for a person in terms of being under the ruler, the king, is to either sit on his right or to sit on his left. And there's only two spots for that. So, but there's 12 of them. So that's what she's asking, right? Grant that these two sons of mine these two disciples of yours, that one of them can sit on your right hand and one of them sit on your left hand when you enter into your kingdom. And this is to get a jump on the others, right? So that one of them can't ask and have that position of honor. And maybe they likely mean Peter because the three, Peter, James, and John, they're the three that are part of the inner circle. They're the three that were taken in when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. He didn't take all the disciples. He only took those three. And also, when they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, who were the three that were taken? Peter, James, and John. There's three of them, but there's only two spots, one on the right and one on the left. So, they're getting a jump on the other disciples for sure, but especially on Peter, so that they can have these positions, these seats, of highest honor in the kingdom of of Christ now is that a good thing to do no (laughs) this is not good this is contrary to the kingdom of Christ Philippians chapter (coughs) 2 Philippians 2 so they're not thinking and this is all uh, uh, they're all in it together she's not doing this on her own initiative only but they're all in collusion together because in the other gospels it's the, the two sons that ask the question So likely, they are the ones that are thinking about it, and then they ask their mother to go and make the request of Christ. But then when He answers, He doesn't just address her, He addresses them as well. Okay, So they're all in cahoots, and they all know. They're not innocent bystanders who are just sitting over there, minding their own business, and their mom is doing this, contrary to their will and contrary to their knowledge. They all know what's going on, and they're all in it together. But they're not in it for the right reasons, right? This is not a good thing. Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Do nothing, he says, from selfishness, nothing from empty conceit. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't look out merely for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. That's the attitude that we're supposed to have in the kingdom of God. Well, is that attitude being expressed in this request? No, it's the exact opposite. So, if this is what the Spirit teaches us, then who's teaching them to do this? Where is it coming from? Well, if it's not coming from the Spirit, it's coming from the flesh. From the flesh that is waging war against the Spirit. And it's teaching them to be selfish, to have conceit, to look out for themselves, and to try to get superiority over their brothers. Then also Galatians chapter 5. And we'll just do part of this tonight and then we'll pick it up um, uh, the rest of it next week because we won't be able to get through all of this tonight. And then we'll just transition into that. So Galatians 5, 25 and 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Right? Living by the Spirit means we should walk by the Spirit. And what is contrary to living by the Spirit? Being boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So living by the Spirit here then is being manifested in the way that we relate to our brothers in Christ. And we shouldn't be envious. We shouldn't be challenging. We shouldn't be boastful against another. So here we see then that this is, they're not living by the Spirit in this case, but rather they're living by the flesh. The flesh is having dominance over them in this instance, which is a reminder to us then, to see how easily we can be deceived by the flesh. These are not your average Christians. These are disciples of Christ. These are apostles of Christ. This is a holy woman as well, a righteous woman, one of the few that was at the cross of Christ whenever He was being crucified. And yet even in them we see the flesh rise up in opposition to the Spirit of God. So should it be any surprise that we also will have to confess and admit that we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. And even the greatest are still dealing with the flesh. And we're fighting against it, and we just have to keep fighting and overcome. And whenever the flesh rises up and does this, it leads to quarrels, conflicts, fights among us, disunity, disharmony. This is what happens. One last passage, James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And what will be the result of them asking for this request amongst the other disciples? It's going to lead to a big brawl, a big fight. Bickering, complaining, anger, indignance toward one another. Right? That's what's going to happen. And then Jesus has to come in and calm them down and say, no way, man, you guys are all thinking wrong. This isn't right. It's not right for them, and it's not right for the rest of you to be in this way. James 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures." You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit, which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God opposed the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. They are the source of quarrels and conflicts. It's their own pleasures, waging war in their members. They lust and do not have, so they commit murder. They're envious, they cannot obtain, so they fight and quarrel. That's what they're doing here. They're envious of one another. They're envying their... And then the result is fighting and quarreling. And you don't have because you don't ask. And then you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives to spend it on your pleasures. Isn't that what's happening here? She's asking, but she's not going to receive. They're asking, but they're not going to receive because they're asking with wrong motives in order to spend it on their own pleasures. They're not thinking about... Christ, His glory, His kingdom, they're just thinking about their own ambition and what's best for them. And so they will not receive anything from the Lord in this instance. So again, here we see how strong the flesh is, even in true believers, even in disciples, even in a holy woman who has the Spirit of God. And so we have to be aware of this ourselves, right, in our own life, and we have to fight against the flesh and wage war against it, and not let it get the upper hand. Okay, well, we'll stop there. I know it's kind of right in the middle, uh, but it all goes together. Uh, so we'll just pick up there next week. I'm going to put a star in here. And, um, and then continue on with the aftermath of this, and then the teaching that comes out of it.